I knew something wasn't quite right. If you know what a goldfish eyeballs look like, well, that's what his eyes look like. Anyone that has a boat knows what they are. They're called an e-perp. Without that thing, you'd be dead. Two four two, have you responded? Two one. We have a young lady unconscious. Topic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. Before I even got out of the car, um, the noise that I heard was probably um, something that you, you really wouldn't want to hear again. He stood up in front of me, and the skin just dripping off everywhere to the ground. Many know of the famous Birdsville track, which runs from Maree in South Australia right up to Birdsville in Queensland. The Birdsville Track is an old stock route that dates back to the 1860s. It was originally used to move cattle from Queensland right down to South Australia. But today the track sees livestock trucks and a steady stream of tourists who are keen to see a precious piece of the Australian outback. The road stretches for more than 500 kilometres from one end to the other and it has a range of conditions from sandy dunes to stony downs. It's unsealed but relatively well maintained and it takes about 10 hours to travel from one end to the other, normally done over two or more days. There's only one fuel stop on the way, and that's about halfway, which is at Mungarani. A few years back, Nigel Hardy was travelling with his mate Jeff, and they pulled over for a pit stop, about 30 kilometres north of Mungarani. And that's when things took an unexpected turn. G'day, Nigel. Hey, guys. I'm good. Um, you're a busy man running a large electrical company in Adelaide. Is four-wheel driving a chance for you to get away and relax? Yeah, it's just peace and quiet and get away with just mates and just get out in the middle of nowhere and have nothing. No phone reception is the key. <laughs> <laughs> what do you like about it? Oh, I just love the open space and the freedom, the enjoyment of um, just being places where, you know, most people don't get a chance to go to, so unless you put yourself out there. I've always yeah. been pretty adventurous. Have you spent a lot of time out four-wheel driving and exploring Australia's remote deserts or is it something that you just do every couple of years? I've done a lot of work in the APY lands and, and out through Northern Territory. As soon as I got my car licence when I was 16, I was gone. I've never been a person that sits, sits around. When you head out four-wheel driving, do you take family and friends or is it more just you and the mates? It depends where we're going, like... I'm probably the, out of my family. I'll be the most adventurous by a long while. But, yeah, I've got a few like cousins and that that do come occasionally and that. But, yeah, usually just mainly mates or my girlfriends, depending which time in my life yeah. it was. <laughs> do you camp or caravan or is it a swag or? Mainly all the time swags. Now I'm getting a little bit older. It's yeah. probably a few creature comforts may uh, <laughs> creep in there a bit. But um, the swag or the rooftop tent's the main uh, <laughs> main um, sleeping attire. So a few years back you were out with some mates and you'd been up through the Simpson Desert, I understand, and then you were coming back down the Birdsville track, is that right? We completed the Simpson Desert, a group of us, and, um, yeah, so we finished that and we all, yeah, we went separate ways into Birdsville. And, um, yeah, me and my mate Jeff, we um, stayed the night just out of Birdsville. So there's... 
Simpson Desert was just, I think it was like the third or fourth time I've done it. I don't know, after about the 20th June you sort of have, have enough, but it's something you always want to do again for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> Motorbikes are next, so. <laughs> so anyway, we'll see how that goes. So you were coming back with Jeff and you'd been with mates all the way through the Simpson Desert and coming back from Birdsville and it was just you and Jeff heading home? Yeah, we sort of did most of this, well, three-quarters of Simpson, just me and him. Yeah, and then we had a few beers in the Birdsville pub that night and um, then, yeah, slept slept out and just out of Birdsville. Great. So then you headed back towards um, Adelaide and that's a, a fairly long run in itself, isn't it, on the Birdsville track? It's, um... it's about 800 k's roughly. Yeah. Three or 400 of that's pretty average dirt road. It's pretty, you know, a lot, a lot of people travel a lot and then that, so you do, you know, you're not the only one out there. So, you know, it's not something I would would not, you know, re- not recommend people to do. And it, it's just the open space and and such, you know, like it's a totally different landscape to most people have ever seen, especially if you long, live along the coast or anything like that. There ain't many trees out there. <laughs> Or, or smog or anything else, so you can see stars and, you know, like all that sort of stuff. Pretty spectacular. Absolutely. So you're driving along and you decide to take a, a rest break. What happened? Yeah, just basically stopped just on the, just off the side of the road, basically, or the dirt road. And, um, yeah, there was a, well, it was about size of a 300 mil diameter pipe with water just gushing out of it. And um, we'd... Just thought, oh, well, it's a good enough spot to park and if there's any. And, um, yeah, my mate got out of the car first because he's always like a little jackrabbit. And um, before I even got out of the car, um, the noise that I heard was probably um, something that you, you really wouldn't want to hear again. From that instant second... I knew something wasn't quite right and I looked over and my mate was um, up to his neck in this murky, murky walk. Well, looked looked really like a quicksand mud hole, basically. And um, if you know what a goldfish eyeballs look like, well, that's what his eyes look like. And um, I sort of um, ran over. For instantly, first I thought he was mucking around because we are both idiots and jokers. But as situation sort of unfolded really quickly, um, I realised things wasn't this wasn't a one of our usual shenanigans. And um, somehow I don't know because Jeff's a pretty big bloke, um, ripped him out and stood him up. Well, he stood up in front of me, and uh, yeah, it was. Pretty horrific what was going on. My skin just dripping off everywhere to the ground. Was it like a pool that he'd fallen into or did it look like mud? Like he hit, had he accidentally... No, nah, so it's just basically the ground just gave way. So just imagine a big-ass pipe with just water gushing out onto the ground and obviously the ground become like quicksand. Wow. So it was nothing like an oasis or anything like that. It was just like basically a big pipe of water dropping onto the ground. Right. And was that pipe coming up from deep in the earth? As I found out later, they they bore down to oh, anywhere to two and a half k's down to get to the water. So the time of water with the friction of the water coming up through the pipe, it gets hot. And obviously, you know, the water's, you know, it depends on 
who you talk to, either the water's hot or it's the friction going through the pipe that causes the heat. Yeah, it comes out of the ground at about anywhere between 90 and 100 plus degrees. Wow. What I say to most people, you scream you scream loud enough when you spill your hot coffee on your lap, your coffee's sitting at about 65 degrees, 70. You know, it's imagine your whole body up to your neck. You managed to pull him out. How did you manage to pull him out without you falling in? I don't know. I don't know. I can't, can't remember it at all. I've got a couple of scars on my elbow where he grabbed me. I'm about 90 kilos and Jeff would probably be about, oh, I'll be nice to him, say 120. (laughs) But, yeah. You're in the middle of this remote, remote area on the Birdsville track, nobody around, and so you managed to haul him out just through pure adrenaline. You get him out the hell out of that that sort of mud-cum-water-pile mud hole of boiling mud, and and then you said his skin was just essentially just... Dripping off. So the best way I've explained it to people is, you know, how candles, the wax drips off a candle. Yeah. That's how it was. That's his skin. Wow. So lucky part of being an electrician, we do first aid training every year, 20-plus years of that, coming to full... Full organisation, I guess. So lucky, you know, um, we are both, you know, in shorts and tank tops, so it wasn't a lot of clothing to come off, but, you know, it's still not easy when your clothes are stuck to your body. Right. Ripped his clothes off and we had an esky full of, like a pretty big esky, full of ice water and obviously refreshments, but the refreshments got turfed real quick. And, um, yeah, I basically kept dousing him in, and got him into into like standing into the esky and kept throwing the water, nice water over him. By this time, he was starting to go into some severe shock. What was he saying, or was was he? What was he communicating, or can you remember that, or were you just in full response mode? <laughs> A lot of f words, <laughs> and, it, and it wasn't Fred. <laughs> Still to say, I can't believe he stayed coherent. We both helped each other to try and work out what the hell to do and how to get this, you know, the situation under control as best as we could. One thing, you know, without this thing, anyone with it that, you know, goes remote, but anyone that has a boat knows what they are, they couldn't heat perp. Without that thing, he'd be dead. Right, and that's and that's a beacon service, a beacon service, an emergency service? Yeah. I didn't, didn't even know Jeff had it with him because he's, he's got a boat, so he had it. He just brought it with him by coincidence because he thought it might be a good idea. And um, I'm slightly dyslexic, so when I was under, you know, obviously a reasonable amount of stress, couldn't read or understand how to operate the thing. And lucky he was still coherent enough to let me know how to operate it and to set it up. So so he's standing in this esky, naked, big, large man, 120 kilos inside an esky, and you're... Splashing him down. Splashing him down and then we talk, then I set that off and obviously I knew by, you know, how much skin was coming off, you know, bacteria and and all that sort of stuff and, you know, trying to keep the bodies clean as possible is pretty paramount because it's raw flesh. Anything or anything will cause anything. So in the end I end up ripping out a... Uh, sleeping bag out of, or try to wrap him up in our fall first, but we couldn't, it was just too windy. So I threw him in the sleeping bag and filled the air sleeping bag up with the ice and water and 
We got him in the car. In the front seat or the back seat? Front seat. It's just a single cab Land Cruiser Ute. Not a lot of space. No, no. So sitting upright, tried the CB radio on all, every channel possible. No, it was obviously in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, unless someone stumbled driving past, you got nothing. Knew the EPIRB was set off, so that was that. And um, tried mobile phones, but, you know, obviously, you know, you try on everything because the situation is yeah. pretty diabolical. Then it had got the map out and try and work out where we were roughly. So I you know, knew where we were, like within, you know, so many Ks. And Mungaratty Station was the closest station that was near us. Off we headed in the direction of Mungaratty. And um, I, don't, I don't know how long it was, but it was about an hour plus drive at, you know, at a reasonable speed, I'd say. I won't, you know, I won't say I was doing the speed limit, but... Um, the road's pretty horrific, and um, but you know stuff's pretty going pear shaped real fast. You, you know, just got to do what you got to do. I wouldn't say it was a happy uh, drive. It was just basically trying to keep him awake, keep him conscious. They were just talking to each other, and you know, like when you got someone like that next to you, you know, that's vaguing in in and out because of the. You know, that extreme pain, yeah. unthinkable. And, and as you're rushing along at high speeds on these dirt roads, I bet that that drive itself wasn't the smoothest. So that, I presume, would all sort of meant it was a not a, um, a quiet journey. would have been a, a desperate dash, a desperate dash to, to get to closest help possible. Yeah, no, like you just surreal is probably the word. You blank out, you know, all the noise of the road and everything else and you just mainly focus and obviously where you're heading, forwards. Was there any other cars that you saw in that one-hour drive to get to Mungaroni? No, nothing at all. Not a single car? No. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes, minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Did you manage to get through to them on the radio or anything before you arrived or did you get no contact until you actually pulled in? If anyone's been to Mungaretti, you know, it's just like sort of an old pub. They'd been notified, as I found out when I rocked up, they were expecting us because the beacon had been tracking our direction. Because the Royal Flying Doctors were on the phone to Phil and Deborah, the people that own the, manage and run the pub. So they had... They had them on the phone and they were tracking us and they said they'll be coming close. I don't know what, what, you know, what's, what's going on or what's the reason or anything because no one knew anything. I flew in there, just about drove the, 
drove the ute into the front of the front bar um, and pulled up. And um, But they weren't expecting what I was about to open the door to. Um, you know, like the ultimate surprise. Phil come out, opened the door, and um, he looked over and saw, you know, just like just shaking, you know, having a fit seizure basically because his body was going into you know, extreme shock. Right. So then he, he handed me over to his missus, Deb, so she she got me to sit down and um, he he dragged Jeff out of the car and took him over to the shower block and put Jeff into sat Jeff down on the seat and put him under a shower and yeah he he don't even want to know about how how much screaming was going on um, yeah they helped me immensely once I sort of took a breath and got my um, faculties together. Yeah, I started giving Phil a hand and Matt trying to manage Jeff's pain as best as we could. Most of the remote stations and all that have got a pretty extensive um, first aid kit. Yeah, so there's, you know, morphine and Phil administered a few shots into Jeff to try and try and nudge, you know, some of the pain. But, yeah, that wasn't even, didn't it? Yeah, it was like giving a kid an ice cream. Yeah, then from that point, obviously the Royal Flying Doctors are on on the phone to Deb, you know, and we're all communicating backwards and forwards to keep them updated to where the situation and what the situation was. What I've just described was in, like, in the first five minutes. So it's a pretty, you know, pretty horrific event for, one, anyone to get their head around and, two, to, um, you know, start putting things into into plan and, you know, and, and you know, administering the best first aid that they can and and trying to organise and work out, you know, what's needed and and how how it's going to get there. Yeah. Because you're not, you know, you're not around the corner. Yeah. Well, you were something like 600 or 700 kilometres away from Adelaide. So it was a fair distance. You were in a very, very remote location. But I understand that the RFDS actually had a clinic that had been a fly-in, fly-out clinic that had been happening somewhere close by, so they diverted that clinic flight so that they could get to you and Jeff faster. So what happens when you set off the beacon? The beacon goes obviously to Canberra, or goes up to the satellite, you know, in the in the sky, and then goes back to a place in Canberra. Maritime search and rescue, or something. Yeah, yeah. and then attached to the personal beacon yeah. is usually two to three people's phone numbers. So then they ring those people and go right. Is what's the chance of this person setting this off? What's and you know, and clarify the actual person with the beacon. And so obviously, when they've made those phone calls back to Adelaide to the people that Jeff had assigned, yeah. they all all said, "Look, if that's gone off and we know where he is, something's obviously not quite kosher." We both experienced enough and know how you know know how to to get ourselves out of things, or yeah, we wouldn't waste their time setting it off. So obviously they had sort of an idea but no idea of what the hell was going on. But, yeah, the actual, when I set it off, the plane was not far above us. I found out from when I was talking to the um, surgeon doctor that come when the Medi flight got there. So, yeah, but obviously because they didn't know the severity of the situation, they said, no, stay true to your destination, which is fair enough. I totally get all get all that and it's, you know, it's part and parcel because unfortunately people don't do the right thing and set it off for a broken leg or whatever and it's, well, you, you know, yeah, you're in a bit of pain but you can get to situations 
if your leg's facing the wrong way and it's got a bone hanging out of it, that's a different story. <laughs> right. Yeah, so once, um, you know, we knew that there was some, uh, you know, Royal Flying Doctors were on their way to Mungaratty, you know, there was a bit of a sign of a relief, but it was still pretty horrific. Scenes going on, yeah, I still, like I said, I've said it before on the thing, I still don't even know how he survived. And it's just one of those things you sort of get a chance to look back on, you know, and it's just so many things that went our way that day. You know, they happened to be in the air, they happened to be near. Yeah, it was only a medi flight doing, you know, routine checks for the remote people that live out there and stuff like that. So they weren't exactly equipped for a situation that they were about to fly into, as we found out. But, you know, even the Royal Flying Docks Dam that's come up from Maree, you know, that got there like in an unbelievable time. <laughs> so when did the plane land to be able to take Jeff out? Was it a few hours later? Oh, a long time like four or five, six hours later. Yeah, so the first plane landed and obviously they were just equipped for to do medical checks f- for the surrounding yeah. stations and outposts. Yeah, they were primary healthcare clinics, so they just weren't equipped for that. No. So they only had what they had to be able to do. So their main thing was to try and stabilise Jeff as best as they could. Yeah, so there was, you know, the pilot was out, everyone out of the plane trying, you know, there's, yeah, six people working on Jeff, like, flat out to try and keep him alive. Right. Yeah, and if you know what the boxes of morphine come in, well, when you see two or three of them sitting on the ground and someone's still screaming. Right. That must have been really hard. Yeah. Yeah. When did that second plane arrive? So that that come after the um, the ambulance from Mari. We're talking around lunchtime now. It felt like forever. It took a long, long time to stabilise Jeff so they could actually fly him out. Yeah. So they got him on the plane and they they took him off to Adelaide, at which point you were left behind. What state were you in when when that plane finally took off? wasn't too bad. I wouldn't say I was um, a pinnacle of health, <laughs> but I wasn't too bad because I knew, you know, I'd done what I could do. Everyone there had gone definitely beyond what anyone could do. Yeah. You When you've got, uh, well, the time the other plane come, you know, there's more than 10 people working on Jeff out the front of the toilet block. You know, it was a pretty huge, huge scene, you know, the, the copper as well from Murray, everyone, you know, it was, like, it, was, it was a big show, you know, of a lot of stuff and a lot of people working together to save someone. It was a lot, you know, so, you know, I was sort of happy but um, concerned as well because you, you don't know. You know, obviously Jeff nearly didn't make it quite a few times out the front and, you know, they had, you know, to administer a lot of, a lot of stuff to keep him alive. And start, try and keep him stabilised because his body kept crashing. Because once you lose all your skin or lose a fair bit of your skin, your body can't contain its heat, so then it just goes into heart, you know, your heart fails. And yeah, I have a quote from Jeff describing what happened that day, and he said, "Quote: I won't sugarcoat it. I was certain I was going to die. Yep. I suffered second degree burns to eighty percent of my body and faced a desperate race against time and distance to save my own life in the middle of the bush." The pain was indescribable. So he luckily, though, Jeff's wife, Julie, was told to expect the worst. But after five months, 
uh, in the Royal Adelaide Hospital in the Burns Unit. He actually recovered, which amazed doctors, and he's walking again and he's back at work. Have you had a lot of reunions with him since that time? You'd go and see him in hospital and he'd be like a starfish, basically, on laying on the bed with the foil stapled to him to keep his skin together. Anyone knows when you've had major burns, what happens is they've got to scrub the skin to keep it all clean and then you've got to get skin grafts. The pain of the burn is one thing. The rehab pain's another whole, another level. And um, unbelievable what a human body can handle. It is, isn't it? If you want to live. The tenacity that people have to endure that sort of thing, it's just outrageous. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Yeah, if you, you're willing to... To keep not going, you know, you can, you can go for anything. Yeah. How's Jeff doing today? How is, he, how is he in terms of his own spirit and his own drive? Has he come through it okay? Oh, I think there's, you know, like lots of things. It's not something like that you can walk, never forget. So there's always going to be certain times and certain things that will change. You might not be the person you are anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just... Yeah. It is what it is, but, yeah, he's getting along with life and um, hopefully soon him and Julie will be travelling around Australia. Good. It's their goal. It's hopefully going ahead very soon. That's great, and I hope he stays well away from thermal hot springs. <laughs> hopefully, no no hot showers. What about you, Nigel? How have you – obviously this has been such a traumatic experience for you and I really feel for you and, and what you've been through. Ha- have you recovered okay? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, obviously talking about it today, you know, brings up things and, you know, you'd have to be pretty abnormal for it not to. Life must go on. You, you've got to get up and get moving. That's why I always have been and that's why it will be. Probably the only thing it does sort of change in my life, I think about a few things before I um, go and do them a bit more now because not that I was ever reckless or anything like that. I was just obviously seeing the value of life and what life's about and how quick it can change. But also probably most thing, be more grateful for what you have. Very wise, very wise statement. It amazes me how many people, so many of us, we work flat out and to you know, have all these things or you know, be able to do all these things, but we don't realise how fortunate we are. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm really glad that you were there that day, Nigel, to help Jeff and to get him to the help that he needed. And I'm really glad that RFDS was able to come in and, and assist on that day. They say that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Do you think you're stronger as a consequence of what happened that day? Oh, 100%. To me, I'll probably become more blunt with things. Not so sugar-coated? Oh, no, never been sugar-coated. I've pretty always been straight to the point. Most people know that who know me. I don't know. I think life, you know, the way people carry on about things and stuff, I just think you've got no idea. <laughs> it's just, yeah. you know, like yeah. it, just, it just opens your eyes to so many different, you know, look at life in a different way, I guess. You can have the worst day in your life, but it's nothing compared to that. <laughs> That's right. Puts it all in perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, not that I wish upon anyone at all. Like a lot of things, you know, you don't want people to see it off, have experience it, but sometimes you think people should actually understand things, you know, and they might look at life in a different yeah. perspective, but, you know, that's life. Yeah. Have you travelled the Birdsville track since that time? Have you gone back? No, nah, not yet. No, nah, we want to, like I said, I've, I'm still an adventurous person and um, 
taken up motorbike riding again and stuff like I've been riding again. And, um, yeah, so the whole heap of us want to do it on our adventure bikes in the next year or two once we all get a bit fitter at, at the moment. Um, that ain't happening. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be interesting um, stopping at sentence because I've got a I got a memory like a like an elephant. Like I always, I take visual snapshots of everywhere, and I never forget anything like that. So I've always, it just helps me get around things when I can't read and write that great. So it'll be interesting looking back at places that the old what if. <laughs> it could have gone so differently, and um, I'm really thankful it didn't. Yeah, we normally wouldn't have taken the EPIRB and would have been a whole other story. Because it would have been an hour and a half of, or an hour, whatever the drive was, without anyone knowing anything. Probably the only other thing I sort of got out of it is, you know, being in my forties now, and you know, a few of my mates in their fifties and sixties, and whatever else is, and people you know, is actually knowing what medical conditions they have is also handy. <laughs> Most blokes don't even know their best mates might have, you know, high blood pressure and be on certain tablets, or you know, whatever, or whatever it is, it doesn't matter, but. You know, until something happens and, you know, people need to know for obvious reasons and you're like, they ask you the question, you're like, well, I don't know. You know, as most blokes wouldn't wouldn't have a clue what their mate is on, you know, well, we just drink beer together, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know about his medical. Thank you so much, Nigel. I really appreciate you telling me about what happened that day. Thank you so much. No, anytime. Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.